All right, now, we're wrapping up Acts. Those of you that are joining us, we're going to begin in two weeks, so this Sunday and the following Sunday, then the next one, we're going to start Genesis. We're going to do Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, Right now, we're wrapping up what we've been doing for a while, all last year, is Paul's first missionary journey. So we're at the end of it. So we're coming to the end of a long journey, a long road. And quite frankly, I'm kind of sad. It almost brings some tears to my eyes. As we come to the end of Acts, what we're approaching right now is the Mount Everest in Acts. It sits in the center of Acts like Mount Everest. And we can't go around it. We have to climb it. Now, if I was honest with you, I'd like to go around this mountain. Honestly. I would like to go around it. I would like to take a helicopter, a plane, or float down the river that would go around this thing. But we can't. It's dead center in the middle of the text for a reason. Now, Acts 15 requires a spiritual toughness to climb it. I'm going to tell you that up front. So consider me your tour guide. We're going to go up this mountain. But it requires spiritual toughness. Not the kind of toughness that I can do it kind of toughness, but the kind of I can't do it toughness that really relies on God. That kind of toughness is required. Now, what's interesting about Acts 15 is that structurally it sits dead center in the book of Acts. You say, Jeff, you already said that. No, I want you to see how dead center it is. Acts 1 through 14 was 12,385 words. Acts 15 to 28 is 12,502 words. Almost down to the word, Acts 15 is dead center in the middle of Acts. And it's there for a reason. Luke wants to highlight something for you. He wants you to climb it. And so right in before we begin our climb, there's a tremendous question begging us from this text. Just from the structure, just from the placement, just from where this thing sits. You can't go around it. Can't go over it. What's the deal? You can't go under it. You got to go through it. We're on our way, brown bear. All right? Now... As we begin to climb, we have to say, well, why is this highlighted? I mean, what's being highlighted? As you ask that question, I mean, what comes to your mind would be, of course, some great truth about who God is. Some great act of God, right? Because God's always the center, central subject of the story, the central subject of the scriptures. It's got to be some great act about God, something that, that fuels our worship of him even more deeply. Something that infuses an abiding trust in Him when everything else is moving around all over us. Something that actually pushes power into your life that you work out of a a joyful delight in obeying Him and serving Him and being a person of impact. Is that what's being highlighted here? No. Okay, Uh, is it a great act of faith that's being highlighted here? As we move into the story, are we going to see the beauty and the excellency of a soul that sinks deeply into God, that trusts very personally, that 
that trusts perseveringly, that trusts toughly in God? Are we going to see mighty heroic acts of faith that the persons and persons that do are used beyond their imagination to impact people's lives? Is that what we're going to see here? The answer is no. Do you know what we're going to see? A great controversy. A church conflict. Oh, oh, that that's just great. I mean, doesn't that thrill you? Doesn't that excite you? I mean, does a church conflict, does a church controversy get you up in the morning? When you look at your day and you're thinking, ah, I want to stay in bed, does a, a church conflict, church controversy, but I before the alarm and ready to go. <laughs> Does a great church conflict and controversy get you lost in reading your Bible like you're reading Harry Potter? Yeah. Does it? Lord of the Rings. Lone Survivor. Does a great conflict or church controversy get you talking to God like he's your real king and loving father. Does church conflict and controversy get you loving others loyally, sacrificially, pursuing other people's good, even to your lesser good maybe? Does a church conflict and controversy cause you to fight through spiritual battle? You're in the midst of it. It's flying. Things are going on. Does it help you fight and persevere in the midst of it to keep you from just sitting down and putting your hands over your ears and saying, I quit? Does a church controversy do that? I told you, I warned you at the very beginning, it's going to require spiritual toughness to climb this text. And I'm not kidding. Because we're going to look at the teeth of one of the greatest controversies in the church and one that always resurfaces in every generation. Okay? Now, I want to hit a timeout. I want to say pause just for a second. I want to talk to those who are struggling to believe in the historical reliability of the Bible. Well, that's an interesting pause, isn't it? But we're going to pause just for a second. I know there are some of us that are struggling. Is what is recorded in the Bible really reliable? Is it true? Is it really accurate history, much less God's Word. Now, I just want to talk to you for a second, and I want to say this, that if you are in that category, you should find Luke's recording of this great controversy and this great conflict, at a minimum, tremendously fascinating. In other words, why would he do that? I mean, this is, he's writing a record of the, of the church, how it got started, Why would he do that? And you know what it would do in a fundamental way, though, if you really get it? In a fundamental way, it'll actually cause you to believe it's reliable. Just for this one simple reason. Are you ready? Why would Luke spin a legend or fiction that makes him look bad? Why would he do that? 
Does anyone spin a legend or a fiction that makes them look bad? I've never read one. You English lit people, have you read one? You know, either Luke has lost his mind like, hey, bud, you're hurting the cause here. Or he's, he's an honest eyewitness reporter giving an accurate account of what happened. You see, Luke doesn't flinch at all here, does he? I mean, he's not flinching. This is no cherry-picking stuff. This is no sugar-coating stuff. He's not quickly passing over stuff. In fact, he makes it dead center in the middle of our path. We can't avoid it. He wants you to see it. He wants you to see this controversy and this conflict. And not only that, he spills all kinds of ink over it, 35 verses, a whole chapter is devoted to it. Just in comparison, remember, last week we saw that tremendous heroic stand of Paul in the midst of a stoning. Three verses. Church controversy, church conflict, 35. Luke's style here is brutal, hard, uncompromising, even embarrassing for the church. All right, timeout's over. Let's keep going. Now, one of my favorite scenes in one of my favorite movies uh, depicts three Scottish chiefs riding out between two armies, the Scots and the English, in the middle of the battlefield. And it looks tremendously courageous. And you see the scene and you're like, but if you know the real story, you know these are a bunch of cowards. And a bunch of compromisers. They like, let's pray, play pretend. They're pretenders. And they've been playing this game of pretending for a long time. In fact, all the leaders on the English and the Scottish side have been playing, let's pretend. What they do is they show a force, they go out and they seek compromise, and then they go home. The English still rule. The Tribal chiefs of the Scots get more wealth, more lands piled on top of their cowardice and their corruption. And meanwhile, the people of Scotland still suffer under the evil oppression of both of them. So as that takes place, one guy from the Scottish lines jerks his horse, jars it in the ribs, and starts heading out to the center of the battlefield. Now, his loyal companions see this happen, and they're a little puzzled, and they call out to him, and they say, where are you going? <laughs> and William Wallace, brave heart, what does he do, men? He turns around with a look that was cut from stone and says, I'm going to pick a fight. Welcome to a fight. Welcome to a fight. Acts 15 is a fight for your only comfort, for your only hope, for your only spiritual sanity in this life and in death. It's a heck of a fight. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Now, it's a long chapter. If you look in your bulletin, Jeremy's like, don't do that again. I couldn't get it on one page almost. So what we're going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to start. We need to see how the, this first missionary journey is coming to an end. So we're going to start 1424, and I'm going to read about half of it. 
When we get to verse 5, join in with me, and then I'll pick it up again at verse 6, and we'll continue on, okay? Now, they pass through Pisidia. They're now on their way out. So they're, they're now backtracking where they had gone. So the first missionary journey is coming to an end. This is it. They passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attila, and from there they sailed to Antioch. Now this is Antioch, which is on the, in the top of the former Israelite territories, okay? So it's modern-day Turkey, uh, where they were commended by the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together, and they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remain no little time with the disciples. So the first church in the final frontier of the Gentiles is now being established. Tremendous, tremendous history of missions, whatever you want to call it. This is unbelievable. Now, this is an interesting way to begin a a chapter. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Wow. Okay. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. Now, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers... Who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Thank you. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, meaning me, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now that was in Acts 11. Remember, that was with Cornelius, okay? And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them. So God looks at the heart of these folks, and he's going to say, God's going to testify on behalf of these Gentiles. How's he going to do that? That's what you should be asking. Oh, here's the answer. By giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them. They haven't been circumcised. They haven't kept one lick of the law having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul, and they related what signs and wonders God had done among them through the Gentiles. After finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon's related how God visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Here's from Amos 9. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild the ruins. I will restore it. It's talking about a messianic visitation of God himself someday in the future. And James is saying, it's happening now. Now watch what happens. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles. Amos 9, who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. 
Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn from God and should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, what happens next? I'm just going to summarize it. The apostles get together. They agree with this. They compose a letter. They said, let's send it back with Paul and Barnabas, but let's send someone else to Silas and another guy to take this letter to give the official declaration of the controversy to the church in this new world. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. You are the Father of compassion. You are the God of all comfort. You are the Father and God of the Lord Jesus. Our Lord Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, Redeemer, we ask that now, Jesus, would you unleash heaven? Would you unleash your spirit? Because your work was enough. Would you help me? Would you help all of us to hear your word from the inside, deep in our soul? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, here's the plan. This is a huge passage, so we have to break it down into bite-sized pieces. So we're going to take a sightseeing tour, a brief sightseeing tour through the text, just to kind of break it down so that we can begin to see better what Luke is trying to highlight in the controversy. We're clearing the way for what Luke is highlighting. He's highlighting something. That's the second thing we're going to do. We're going to see what he's highlighting. And when we see it, we found the point. We've, we've struck gold. We know the point of the passage. Okay, that's what we're going to do. And then if we have time, Lord willing, there'll be some specific, specific directions that will flow out of the point. Okay? All right. Do you feel like you know where we're going? Feel okay? Need some water? A little snack before we go? Okay, here we go. Let's start with a quick tour through the text. The first stop is we're going to a place called Trouble. There is trouble in the church. I want you to just watch the words. That's all we're going to do. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? In verse 10, the trouble is putting God to the test. You know what that means? In our vernacular, in our language, it would be getting in God's face. It is questioning and challenging God's character and conduct, His worth and His work. If you were C.S. Lewis, you'd say it's God in the dock. And it means that instead of us standing before the judge, it's putting the judge in the place of accusation, and we're the judge over the judge. It's testing God. This trouble tests God. Now notice what else it does. Keep going in verse 10. It tests by placing a yoke. On the neck of the disciples. Now, a yoke is a big wooden mantle that would go around big animals like ox. 
and it was this big wooden mantle that would slip around the neck and it would be fastened here and it would be like about this big compared to the animal and attached to it would be the, the ropes or the cords and it was used to control this beast of burden who always carries a burden and the person can control it and that's the picture here. It's this incredible yoke placed on a Christian to control them. Now, I want you to see it is an unbearable burden according to this text. And not only that, it's been an unbearable burden for all the people of God throughout all history. And that's why he says our fathers, past, presently us. And it's an unbearable burden even for those who are placing the yoke on you or placing the yoke on this, these folks. It's an unbearable burden to even the yoke placers, even though they think they carry the burden really well. Okay? Now, let's move on. Verse 19, the trouble's called trouble. That's where I got the place called trouble. It literally means to cause unnecessary trouble or distress. Now, the key word, the point is there, it's unnecessary. Isn't that interesting? In verse 19, it's trouble, but it's always unnecessary distress. The point is, this is a kind of distress and a kind of trouble that's brought to a person. It doesn't have to happen. It doesn't need to happen. It's unnecessary hurt. It's unnecessary pain. I mean, you can almost hear the apostle saying, look, we've got plenty of pain in this world. We've got plenty of hurt in this world. This is unnecessary. We don't need this. No one needs this. Okay, in verse 24, we look at the tool of trouble. There's a specific tool of trouble in the place called trouble, and it's found in verse 24. Look at 24. Since we have heard some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with what? Words. Wow. Now, who expected that? I didn't expect that. That words can trouble. Words can unsettle your mind or your soul. Who would have thought that teaching, doctrine, theology can bring trouble? Who would have thought that? Words are powerful. So teaching, doctrine, theology can delight and deliver and destroy and bring distress. Words are powerful. Okay. Now these words, look at the phrase unsettling your minds. The literal translation is unsettling your souls. I wish they would have kept it. But the point is the same. Those of you that are familiar with the way the scriptures talk, the soul or the heart is the seat of the mind the seat of the affections, the seat of the will. So anytime you see mind or understanding and you see will and actions and conduct and you see affections, which are deep treasurings and loves and desires, the seat of them all is the soul. So if you're going to talk about the mind, you can't talk about the mind without it talking about the soul. Because the seat of the soul, the engine of the mind, the engine of your understanding is always your soul. 
you can't just kind of divide yourself up into this, I think rationally about over here and it doesn't touch my soul, and I can have these tremendous desires and loves and passions over here and it doesn't touch my soul, and I can act and will and do conduct and it doesn't touch my soul. No, it unsettles your soul. So these words reach the most deepest part of who you are. It reaches your soul. It gets into the engine room, and the word is unsettles you there. Now, that word literally is a military word, which means to plunder. So when an when a army goes through a town and they plunder it, that's what these words do to your soul. They bulldoze it. They raise it to the ground. They push it into chaos. They turn it upside down. They destroy it. Okay. Now, don't miss who is causing the soul trouble. Read, let's look at verse 5. This is shocking to me. But some believers... The ones causing the trouble are not unbelievers. The ones causing the trouble are not self-professing skeptics and are not self-professing critics of the Bible or Christianity. The ones causing the trouble... I told you this is tough text. The ones causing the trouble are Christians, Bible-believing people, church-going people, sincerely committed Christians... Christians who care about holiness, Christians who care about holy living, Christians who care about doing right and living by the law. That's kind of unsettling, isn't it? Because, you know, I read this and I say, okay, can I be one of those? The answer is yes. Can you be one of those? The answer is yes. In fact, when Paul writes later about this in Galatians, even an apostle can, and his name was Peter. So this isn't a you, them, us, them thing. This is a we thing. We do this. We are these people. We believe these teachings. We teach these teachings. Well, what are they? Well, our second stop should have a warning sign. We're just moving. We're moving. Our second stop should have a warning sign. The warning sign over it should at least be one of those... You know, those parental control things that are on movies and on videos or whatever. You know, we could put PG-13 on our next stop. And we also should have a little footnote that warns queasy parents about what might be happening next. Because the place we're going to next is called Cuff. Christian ultimate fighting. Are you ready? Paul picks a fight with the troublemakers. Paul picks a fight with them. Look at verse 1 and 2 of 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul picks a fight. Luke's sarcasm and choice of words here are loaded. No small dissension and debate. Luke uses the word for dissension in other places for riot and revolt. So the literal translation could go something like this. Paul had no small riot and heated argument with him. So there's no way I can sugarcoat this. This is a heated confrontation. When Paul describes this in Galatians, he says, look, I oppose them to their face. Now, this gets a little for us, oh, for, for those of us 
that have a, a fear of confrontation, this makes us really queasy. Do you know that my first, I'll never forget my first experience with Russian relationships. And I see faces out here that were with me over there. They know exactly what I'm talking about. My first experience with Russian relationships was like this. We were going to a place to eat. And while we were going there, there's a group of us, some American, some Russian. And we're going over there. And while we're going to the restaurant, these two girls next to each other started talking to each other. If you could call it talking. I mean, really loud. Louder than Pete. I mean, really loud. And not only that, they, they'd bang their fists. They'd point their fingers. Their eyes were flashing. Their face was warm. They were, they were in each other's face. They left no personal space with each other at all. And finally, after about two blocks of this, I turned to Roman and I said, Roman, what's going on over there? And why are they fighting? And Roman looked at me with this very puzzled look and he goes, what? I said, they're fighting. What's going on? And he said, they're not fighting, Jeff. They're, um, how do you say, conversing. <laughs> and almost on cue, we crossed the street, and they locked arms and walked across the street together. Taught me a big lesson. And here's our quick application while we're at site two of cuff. Are you ready? Do not make soft, do not mistake soft conduct for love. Do not. Love is not people-pleasing conduct. Love is not peace-at-all-cost conduct. Love is not a non-confrontational conduct. Love is not people-pleasing, people-oriented, extrovert conduct. You know what love is? Love is a a driving treasure. It's treasuring and tracking like a hunter the fame of God. Love is pursuing, treasuring the fame of God, tracking the fame of God in all things and above all things. And that means when love is directed horizontally towards somebody, it's pursuing their ultimate good because God's fame and a person's good are married So genuine biblical love is treasuring and tracking the fame of God in all things and above all things. And sometimes it's soft conduct, sometimes it's firm conduct. But that's what love is. Now I need to say something before we move on. Quick side note, this is not an excuse to baptize your anger as firm love. New, new, new. What you've got to ask yourself when you're angry is this. Is my anger my firm love, arising out of treasuring and tracking God's fame and their good? Or is it arising out of that person blocking me from getting what I want? My desires, my agenda, respect, fill in the blank. Okay, let's move on. Place number three. We've got to keep going. Third stop is to Jerusalem. Finally, to the apostles. Now, this is a a fascinating shift on the site. The trouble is taking to Jerusalem. And the question is, why is it taking to Jerusalem? And the answer is, it's not stated for you propositionally. So those of you that love it spelled out for you, you're not going to get it spelled out for you. But those of you that are more image-oriented, you're going to see it. In the movement in the text, the answer to why they go to Jerusalem is they're going to the Word of God. 
They're going to the apostles, the apostolic witness, the apostolic word. What a tremendous picture here of controversy and conflict. What you do, what's the first step you do? Go to the word. The priority and the authority of scriptures. So the, the debate or the process of apostolic deliberation went like this. First, there's the debate. We saw that. Then Peter speaks. What does Peter do? He recounts what God had done. And then he makes his point. After he states his point, I mean, everything up to this point was heated debate. Everything up to this point would be a, a group like this and raising hands, pros, cons. I just was at one in Presbytery. I mean, it's intense. There's discussion. There's debate. Ideas are flying. Peter stands up. He speaks. And you know what happens when he's done? Silence. Silence. Paul and Barnabas stand up, they give their report, and then James stands up and he backs Peter and Paul and then goes to the prophets. And John Stott is right. If you see the image, you got it. He goes to the apostolic word, Peter and Paul, their witness, New Testament. And then James goes to the prophetic witness and word, Old Testament. Both agree this is the point. We're done. Now we're ready to see what Paul's highlighting. Are you ready? What did Peter say that silenced everybody? What's the apostolic witness and word that solved the debate? What's the prophetic witness and word that solved the debate? What untied this knot? What gets you up the mountain, over the mountain, through the mountain? What saves the church? What saves the day? What's the answer? Anybody? Ah, I heard a word. Okay. True. Now I'll put it in this way. You ready? Jesus justifies you more than you think. Now I know for all of us right now, that word is very colorless. Justification justifies... Gosh, he uses big words. All right. Jesus justifies you more than you think. I need to fill it in with a little color. I told you that when I got back, that what I do for my summer, I have a summer habit, right? My summer habit is, is I, I pray for and then I search for one book that God will use over the summer to feed my soul. I trust in God's providence, and then I go hunting for it. And I told you I found that book called Two Wars by a China Spring native named Nate Self. Remember, he went in, he led a bunch of rangers to rescue a seal who got surrounded by a bunch of Al-Qaeda fighters 10,000 feet on a mountain. It's the, it's the highest elevated battle in the history of America. Seven lives were lost. Seven of the men he led in were lost. Days, a couple days after this battle, his men and him are cycling back to the United States. The unit was broken up. They will never all be together again. And at this moment, he gathers them all together. They huddle in close and he says, look, this is what he says to them. Listen, guys, nothing special here. I just want to tell you a couple of things. First, I want you to know that I'm proud of you. You're the best. And you proved that. You proved it every day. You proved it on that mountain. You've proved it since then. You don't have to prove yourselves anymore. Don't feel like you need to prove yourselves to anybody. Anybody. Do you understand that? No one else. 
You've proven yourselves to each other. You've proven yourselves to me. And that's all that matters. Brothers and sisters, my friends, what would it be like to never have to prove yourself again? What would it be like to never again, deep down in your soul, to live by, and what I mean by living by, pursuing your happiness and your hope, what I mean by pursuing your happiness and your hope and your living by, building your sense of self, trying to find a sense of acceptance and approval, pursuing fundamental life and comfort. What if deep down in your soul you never were driven by the approval or disapproval of a parent? The approval or disapproval of a spouse. The approval or disapproval of a friend. Or what if the success, your success and failure as a professional, in school, as a mother, as a wife, as the class comedian, as the cool jock, as the tough guy, the attention of the boys, the approval of the boys, the disapproval of the boys. What if you never had to do that again? What would it be like to be perfectly accepted beyond your wildest imagination? What would it be like to be perfectly approved affirmed, treasured, and loved beyond your wildest imagination? What would it be like to be perfectly righteous? Do you know what it would look like? Jesus justifies you more than you think. I want you to look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test placing, by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples? The yoke that is unbearable is building your life, proving yourself, pursuing your happiness and your hope, finding your fundamental comfort in life in something other than the grace of God. I don't care how good it is. I don't care if it's, if it's honoring your mom and your dad. I don't care if it's keeping the Sabbath. I don't care if it's providing for your family. The problem in the context in this text is not bad things building your life around. Pursuing your ultimate happiness and hope around. Trying to justify yourself around. Trying to be accepted and approved around. It's not bad things. It's good things. Christian things. The context here is building your life around keeping the law, your spiritual performance. But you can fill in anything 
a love relationship, your work, your career success. Fill it in. Fill in the blank. Now, the point here is it's unbearable. You can't bear it. In fact, what happens is if you are successful in bearing it, it always demands more. It's never satisfied. And if you fail, if you fail at it, it punishes you. Emotional insecurity, dread, this pressure, a compulsiveness to control your life, disintegration inside your soul happens. Unbearable. Now, look at verse 11. And when you read verse 11, I want you to realize this. When the Greek wants to emphasize something, it puts it first in the order of the sentence. So I'm going to read it literally from the Greek as you listen and look at your text in verse 11. Here it goes. But, now what's that? But, in contrast to the unburdenable yoke, in contrast to building your life around spiritual performance, but in contrast to that, here we go, through the grace, that's the first thing in the sentence, through the grace that is sourced in or freely flows out of the Lord Jesus We believe, we, believing Israelites, are justified. Perfectly accepted beyond our imagination. Perfectly loved beyond our imagination. Perfectly righteous beyond our imagination. And not only us, but them, Gentiles. So here we go. When you build your life... Proving yourself, justifying yourself around the righteousness of another, the grace that flows from the source of Jesus. You don't ever have to prove yourself again. Not to yourself, not to another person, and not to God. You're approved. You're perfectly loved, perfectly accepted, treasured and affirmed beyond your imagination. Okay. There's lots of things we could say. It's a big passage, but I'm going to end there. I know some of you are wondering, well, what what about all that blood stuff he said? Well, maybe we want to talk about that. Come, I'll stay up here and we'll talk about it. What I will say is this, is that what they do tell the church, the Gentile believers to do, is in the spirit of love for your weaker brother. In other words, Jewish Christians have dietary laws and they have some things in their conscience, applications of the law that they work out, and the response was, would you consider them? Consider them from love as they work through the transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant. That's the point. Okay? All right. Amen.